In reality television, the people are represented by two separate but equally obsessed attorneys. This is their podcast. Hi, I'm Ceci. And I'm Angela. And this is the Bravo Docket. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. In reality television, the people are represented by two separate but equally obsessed attorneys. This is their podcast. Hi, I'm Ceci. And I'm Angela. And this is the Bravo Docket. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Bravo Docket. So last episode, we covered Johnny Depp's lawsuit against The Sun in the UK. And today we're going to be covering the highly publicized trial for his defamation claims against Amber Heard in the US. But we wanted to address some things before we dive into the facts and the substance and all of the material from the trial. So I'll hand it off to Angela. So for the last episode, just wanted to let everybody know that I took your comments to heart. We've made some changes to the last episode, and we've worked really hard on this episode in light of those comments. And also, I'm about to go do some quick vocal warm-ups because I'm losing my voice. I do want to acknowledge that this is a defamation case, and at the heart of defamation cases is testing the truth via the evidence presented in the trial. So it will naturally come across in coverage as if we don't believe Amber, and on the flip side, as if we don't believe Johnny. That's an unfortunate side effect of the law of defamation. If you'll recall, we covered Brandy Glanville's statements against Joanna Krupa. That was also a defamation claim. However, the topic there was very different. It was about the smelliness of a body part versus here. It's about very dark allegations of abuse. We're going to try and be as respectful as we can while analyzing the allegations made by both sides. We're really focusing on the law in this episode and On that note, I really just hope that this case doesn't discourage people that are in abusive relationships from going and seeking help and from going and seeking justice through the court system. We want to address some of the topics that have made this case so personal and so difficult for a lot of people. This case involves intense testimony about domestic violence and intimate partner violence, and we want to talk about what those terms mean. The Center for Family Justice defines domestic abuse as a pattern of coercive controlling behavior that is a pervasive, life-threatening crime affecting people in all our communities, regardless of gender, age, sexual orientation, race, 
ethnicity, religion, social standing, or immigration status. Abuse is not love. It is one person in a relationship having power and control over the other person. Domestic violence takes many forms, including physical, emotional, economic, stalking, and harassment and sexual. One in four women and one in nine men report being victims of intimate contact sexual violence. Intimate contact sexual violence includes rape, being forced to penetrate, sexual coercion, and or unwanted sexual contact. We want to emphasize that Amber Heard's and Johnny Depp's relationship and lawsuits and the outcome of this trial, whatever it may be, cannot and do not invalidate anything that you felt or experienced or the very real fact of domestic violence, intimate partner violence, regardless of gender or sexual orientation. There's nothing that's happened in this trial that can invalidate anything that's happened to you or your experience. And we know it's difficult for people to have listened to a lot of the testimony and the discussion that's gone on. Ceci, do you want to talk about some of the biases? Okay, celebrity bias. So Joanna Pepin is a researcher at the University of Maryland who looked at public responses to domestic violence in 66 celebrity cases between 2009 and 2012. She found that it was very common for people to discount the allegations against popular celebrities, both by minimizing the severity of their crimes and by blaming the victims. In the 2016 Guardian article, she was quoted as saying, so far, the conversation about Depp and Heard has been consistent with what I found in my my research. Reports from Depp's previous girlfriends, people that know him, that he's a great guy, he didn't abuse me, he's a great father. These things are pretty typical in the articles I coded. The other thing was the victim blaming in the articles against Heard that she's a gold digger, somehow responsible for the violence. The article that we just quoted from was from 2016. This is There's been years of this, and so we do think it's important to talk about it. Victim blaming. So victim blaming comes in many forms, and it's often subtle and unconscious. It can apply to cases of rape and sexual assault, but it can also apply to mundane crimes, like a person who gets pickpocketed and then is chided for his or her decision to carry a wallet in their back pocket. Anytime someone defaults to questioning what a victim could have done differently to prevent a crime, he or she is participating to some degree in the culture of victim blaming. Quote, I think the biggest factor that promotes victim blaming is something called the just world hypothesis, says Sherry Hamby, a professor of psychology and the founding editor of the APA's Psychology of Violence Journal. Quote, it's this idea that people deserve what happens to them. There's just a really strong need to believe that we all deserve our outcomes and consequences. Hamby explains that this desire to see the world as just and fair may even be stronger among Americans who are raised in a culture that promotes the American dream and the idea that we all control our own destinies. There's also the perfect victim bias, and this is from a recent article by Lucy Kokorin in Elle, Australia. The focal point of any sexual assault case should always be the perpetrator. More often than not, the spotlight turns toward the victim. From analyzing whether or not they'd been under the influence of alcohol to deciphering the timeline of events and how long they've taken to come forward, every aspect of a victim's life falls under scrutiny. Despite what we might think on a human level, the eyes of the law often require them to have lived a blameless life in order to be believed and validated in their assault experience. And though it seemingly stops at a behavioral level, it can also run a lot deeper, intersecting with race, sexuality, and age, all of which are completely out of the victim's control, but possess the power to undermine their case in a detrimental way. The reason that the perfect victim picture is so dangerous is because it excludes the vast majority of women who are targeted for sex crimes because their perpetrators know that they won't be believed. And wow, that is very true. 
That just reminds me of the Brock Turner case. We didn't mention every possible bias, but we wanted to bring these up to acknowledge the very real existence of these biases and the fact that this case has brought up a lot of discussion. And trial attorneys prosecuting and defending these cases have to be very aware of them because it's the reality that we live in and jurors and judges are human and necessarily imperfect. And therefore, it's inevitable that some of these things will likely come into play in a trial such as this one. Let's go into the background for this case, legal and otherwise. So last episode, we discussed Depp's trial against the tabloid The Sun in the UK, which he lost. So what effect does the UK, the ruling there, have on the case here? And that answer is none. And this goes to some federal rules of civil procedure concepts that every law student has to learn in law school. So you basically can only, you only have one chance to assert a claim or raise a defense. And once a court has made a final judgment on a particular issue, the doctrine of collateral estoppel or issue preclusion states that the issue cannot be raised again. However, in order for that to happen, there has to be privity or a legal connection between Heard and the Sun. So they found that there wasn't one here. The U.S court in Virginia found that there wasn't privity between Heard and the Sun, so they allowed the case to proceed. Before we get to the legal standard here, let's just give a quick summary of what this suit is about. Deb is suing her for $50 million over a 2018 Washington Post op-ed, and then Heard is countersuing Depp over comments made by Depp's former attorney. And we're going to go into detail later about what those allegations are specifically and the legal standard. Ceci, do you want to talk about the statement? Yeah. So first, let's talk about the statement. I've condensed it. I haven't edited out anything. I just have put some paragraphs out of it just for timing purposes. But I will read what I have here. We can post a link to the full statement on our social media. So here it goes. I was exposed to abuse at a very young age. I knew certain things early on without ever having to be told. I knew that men have the power physically, socially, and financially, and that a lot of institutions support that arrangement. I knew this long before I had the words to articulate it, and I bet you learned it young, too. Like many women, I had been harassed and sexually assaulted by the time I was of college age, but I kept quiet. I did not expect filing complaints to bring justice, and I didn't see myself as a victim. Two years ago, I became a public figure representing domestic abuse, and I felt the full force of our culture's wrath for women who speak out. Friends and advisors told me I would never work as an, again as an actress, that I would be blacklisted. A movie I was attached to recast my role. I had just shot a two-year campaign as the face of a global fashion brand, and the company dropped me. Questions arose as to whether I would be able to keep my role of Mira in the movies Justice League and Aquaman. I had the rare vantage point of seeing in real time how institutions protect men accused of abuse. Imagine a powerful man as a ship like the Titanic. That ship is a huge enterprise. When it strikes an iceberg, there are a lot of people on board desperate to patch up the holes. Not because they believe in or even care about the ship, but because their own fates depend on the enterprise. In recent years, the Me Too movement has taught us about how our power like this works not just in Hollywood, but in all kinds of institutions. So Heard has said that the article was about powerful men, sexual assault, and issues related to the Me Too movement prevalent at the time and not just about Depp. And something that Depp's attorneys have tried to do, and we'll get to why, is get her to say that the article was about Johnny. And she has said, it's not about him. It's not about Johnny. It's more about what happened to me after the relationship. That was the more interesting thing for me to write about at the time. 
She added, I wrote this op-ed in the context of many men at the time that were public figures or in the public and had been accused as well. So it was a reference in general to a larger phenomenon, not just Johnny. And the Me Too movement has been a huge part of the case. But what is it? The ACLU general counsel first approached Amber Heard about the op-ed in 2017 at the height of the Me Too movement. And this comes up later in arguments made by Amber Heard's defense. But it's important to note a few things about the Me Too movement before we discuss it in the context of the trial. The Me Too movement was founded by Tarana Burke, and the following is from Burke's website. As a proud native of the Bronx, New York, Tarana's passion for community organizing began in the late 1980s. As a young girl, she joined a youth development organization called 21st Century. She launched initiatives around issues including racial discrimination, housing inequality, and economic justice. That work, coupled with a desire to deepen her academic education and community organizing skills, eventually led her to Alabama State University, a historically black institution. Tarana's organizing and advocacy work continued throughout college. Upon moving to Selma, Alabama, her career took an intentional turn towards supporting survivors of sexual violence. She encountered a black girl who shared her story of sexual violence and abuse. Soon she found herself meeting dozens more. As a survivor herself, these were the stories with which she identified personally. Tarana faced the realization that too many girls were suffering and surviving abuse without access to resources, safe spaces, and support. The phrase Tarana Burke coined to promote a sisterhood of survivors, Me Too, became a viral social media hashtag. Within days, Burke went from being a grassroots community organizer to a national icon, and the movement she had nurtured for more than a decade in church basements and school classrooms erupted into a global rallying cry that brought down the careers of dozens of powerful men accused of sexual misconduct, including Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein and many others in 80 countries. Burke's story is amazing, and if you want to learn more, Harvard University published a case study on Burke called Leading with Empathy, Tarana Burke in the Making of the Me Too Movement. Okay, so let's get into the jury instructions here. We've been, Angela and I have been like anxiously awaiting the jury instructions because this is literally what instructs the jury on how to make their decision. Before we dive into them, do you want to talk about how jury instructions get argued between the parties? When I first get a case, typically the first thing I do is look at what the jury instructions say. Pretty much every state and the federal courts have model jury instructions you can look at. And they're written in a way so that people who aren't lawyers can look at the law and then apply the law to the facts. So both parties at the end of the case submit their proposed jury instructions and then counsel have legal arguments to the judge over what jury instructions should be used. Jury instructions are the most important part of a case because juries take these very seriously and they have them in the jury deliberation room with them and they go through them line by line. So having somebody that is really good at arguing the jury instructions on your team is super important, and you can't just leave that to the last minute. It's really just the most important thing for your case. Yeah, it's like the real rule book for the jurors on how to decide the case. It's so crucial. And then the jury, as they're deliberating, can ask questions about it, and sometimes the attorneys even argue about how to answer the questions that they give. In my jury trials that I've had where jurors have asked questions, you get really excited because they're back there and you've spent two years working up a case. It's your time away from your family and you have no idea what the jury's doing. Sometimes it freaks you out because you can't figure out why they're asking it. Both sides are, oh, my God, what have we done? (laughs) We obviously didn't explain things well enough. And then sometimes they'll ask a question and you can see where they're going with it, maybe Mm -hmm. you think. And so It's like getting a clue into what they're thinking when they ask a question. And then most of the time, the judge will just write back and say, you have to decide the case based on 
the testimony you heard and the evidence that's been submitted, and they won't go beyond that. And just it tells them just to look at the jury instructions and not to go beyond it. But sometimes you do get to answer the question. Sometimes also the jurors just ask for things. Like we had a jury that asked for a cigarette break and a chocolate cake. So (laughs) you just don't know. We got a question and whoever wrote it had put a little heart instead of a period in the question mark. And we're like, okay, this is a woman perhaps that wrote this question. We think it's this juror. We think she's leading it. If she's leading it, then we are, we're going to win. And like, it's, it's total speculation. Total yeah, yeah. Yeah. We were, yeah, not correct, but. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So the first jury instruction we want to talk about, because both sides argued this in closing arguments, is the jury instruction on judging the credibility of witnesses. This instruction is really helpful. And it says, you are the judges of the facts the credibility of the witnesses, and the weight of the evidence. You may consider the appearance and manner of the witnesses on the stand, their intelligence, their opportunity for knowing the truth and for having observed the things about which they testified, their interest in the outcome of the case, their bias, and, if any have been shown, their prior inconsistent statements, or whether they have knowingly testified untruthfully to any material fact in the case. You may not arbitrarily disregard believable testimony of a witness. However, After you've considered all the evidence in the case, then you may accept or discard all or part of the testimony of a witness as you think proper. So that's really powerful because it's telling the jurors, you are the judges of the facts. You get to decide who's credible and who's not. And it says you are entitled to use your common sense in judging any testimony from these things and all other circumstances of the case. You may determine which witnesses are more believable and weigh their testimony accordingly. In a case like this, where It all depends on the testimony of the two people making their allegations. It's difficult. It's difficult. But it it depends on how you define abuse because Amber Heard's attorneys have argued that Johnny Depp breaking things and behaving the way that he did and then the text messages and the names that he called her are abusive. And they're saying that's abuse. There isn't a definition for abuse here. And that's, I think, what both sides are keying in on as they're arguing this. Yeah. So this jury instruction also says that you must not base your verdict in any way upon sympathy, bias, guesswork, or speculation. Your verdict must be based solely on the evidence and the instructions of the court. Your verdict must be based in the facts and as you find them on the law as contained in these instructions. This instruction is probably one of the most important ones as far as giving the jurors a roadmap for how to process all of the information they've been given. And they're not supposed to be looking at outside media. So they're just supposed to take what has been presented to them in the confines of the jury room or the jury room. My Lord, the courtroom (laughs) in the confines (laughs) of the courtroom. They're just taking the pure evidence that they have been given and the testimony that they've been given to make their decision. And they're allowed to use their common sense and their brains and analyze this and critique it using the jury instructions, but they're not being swayed by the media that's out there, the memes that are out there that are horrific. Memes about this case, in my opinion, are horrific. So I just wanted to emphasize that again, that they're in this insular cut off box to make this decision. Do you want to read the jury instruction for how the court said exactly what Depp has a burden to prove? Yes. So these are the seven elements that the jury instructions state that Depp has the burden to prove. Number one, whether Ms. Heard made or published any of the following statements, and these are portions of her op-ed. 
Two, do any of Ms. Hurd's statements imply or insinuate anything about Mr. Depp? Three, were Ms. Hurd's statements seen by anyone other than Mr. Depp? Four, did Ms. Hurd's statements convey a defamatory implication to someone who saw them other than Mr. Depp? Five, are the implications or insinuations about Mr. Depp in Hurd's statements false? Six, did Ms. Hurd make the statements with actual malice by clear and convincing evidence? Seven, if Mr. Depp is entitled to recover damages, what is the amount of Mr. Depp's damages? If Depp fails any of the seven, the jury has to find for Ms. Hurd. So going back to one, Ben Rottenborn, Amber Hurd's attorney, summarized in his closing argument what the statements are at issue here. And it's first, quote, then two years ago, I became a public figure representing domestic abuse, and I felt the full force of our culture's wrath for women who speak out. The second statement, I had the rare vantage point of seeing in real time how institutions protect men accused of abuse. And then they also, Depp included the headline from the op-ed. So those are the statements at issue. Something else, number two, which was, do any of Ms. Hurd's statements imply or insinuate anything about Mr. Depp? I was looking at the Virginia state law recently, and so that this does not mean that the published statement must refer to the plaintiff by name. So it does not have to refer to Mr. Depp by name. Rather, Mr. Depp would satisfy the element by showing that the publication was intended to refer to Depp and would be so understood by persons reading or hearing it who knew the plaintiff. So it does not have to name him by full name or even by any part of his name. It's if the public can make a connection to it being Depp, then it satisfies that second element. So the element three were Ms. Hurd's statements seen by anyone other than Mr. Depp. I think that one's pretty much in the bag. Yeah, because, that's, you know, we've all, it was published. And then four is a big one. Did Ms. Hurd's statements convey a defamatory implication to someone who saw them other than Mr. Depp? So obviously just Johnny Depp being upset about them doesn't count. It has to be other people seeing the statements and saying, oh, yeah, that's about Johnny Depp. And he is an abuser, essentially. So for five, I want to just give a quote from Camille Vasquez's closing, because I think that kind of sums up their theory of the case. And so she said, quote, exactly six years ago today, on May 27, 2016, Ms. Hurd walked into court and filed a false report of domestic abuse against her husband of 15 months, Johnny Depp. The scene was a setup. She tipped off the paparazzi so that they would be waiting. They knew exactly where she would pause, which side of her face to photograph, and the photos captured what she wanted them to see, the image of a battered woman. And that's quoted directly from the closing argument. And so that is really, I think the crux of their argument on five. Depp's attorneys are arguing that this began as a hoax and then it snowballed from there. And then number six was, did Ms. Hurd make the statements with actual malice? And we'll talk about this later because there is an instruction as to what actual malice is. Oh, and just going back, because we're going to be using quotes from closing to summarize what the parties argued about the elements of these things. Closing argument's different because counsel are allowed latitude in arguing conclusions that the jury should reach on the evidence presented. And this is a quote from a Virginia case, but it says, counsel may argue any proper inferences and deductions from the case that can be fairly drawn from the evidence. So that's why Mr. Depp's attorney was allowed to make the argument in closing that the evidence 
presented demonstrated their theory of the case, which essentially is that Amber Heard, according to Depp's attorneys, is faking the abuse. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Okay, so then for Amber Heard's claims against Depp, she has the burden to prove the following elements. Number one, did Adam Waldman, while acting as an agent for Depp, make the following statements? And Adam was, he was his former attorney. Okay, did Adam Waldman, while acting as an agent for Mr. Depp, make the following statements? Amber Heard and her friends in the media used fake sexual violence allegations as both sword and shields, depending on their needs. They have selected some of her sexual violence hoax as facts as the sword, inflicting them on the public and Mr. Depp. Second statement. Quite simply, this was an ambush, a hoax. They set Mr. Depp up by calling the cops, but the first attempt didn't do the trick. The officers came to the penthouses, thoroughly searched and interviewed, and left after seeing no damage to face or property. So Amber and her friends spilled a little wine and roughed the place up, got their story straight under, under the direction of a lawyer and publicist, and then placed a second 911 call. Third statement, we have reached the end of the abuse hoax against Johnny Depp. Number two, were any of the statements about Miss Heard? I think that one's in the bag for her. Yeah, I don't think there's no one was. I don't even think there's they no. didn't even make that argument. Yeah, No, <laughs> they weren't about her. Those statements are definitely about her. 
Were any of the statements seen by someone other than Ms. Heard? Definitely, because that was published many places. Are any of the statements false? Were any of the statements made with actual malice? If Ms. Heard is entitled to recover, what is the amount of Ms. Heard's damages? We have to talk about what actual malice is because it has a different definition in a defamation case than it does the, the word malice than it does just as we would understand it generally in everyday life. And we're going to also talk about the different burdens of proof in this case, because there's two and they apply equally for Amber Heard's case as to Johnny Depp's case. So they both have the same standards, but there's two standards. This is confusing. I think we should define malice now because yeah. both Depp and Heard have to prove actual malice for their claims. The title of this jury instruction says actual malice is not ill will, hatred or bias. Quote, the term actual malice should not be confused with the more common meanings of the word malice, such as ill will or hatred. Actual malice is not established merely because an author was motivated by ill will, prejudice, hostility, hatred, contempt, or even a desire to injure another. The court goes out of its way to explain what actual malice is not in the context of this case, because here's what it is in the context of the case. So this is the actual malice instruction to the jury. So, quote, both parties have the burden of proving actual malice by clear and convincing evidence. To meet this burden, each party must prove by clear and convincing evidence that each statement was made or published, one, with knowledge that the statement was false, or two, so recklessly as to amount to a willful disregard for the truth. That is, with a high degree of awareness that the statement was probably false. Actual malice is a subjective analysis that looks to the state of mind of the person who made the statement. If the person who made the statement believed it was substantially accurate at the time of its publication, then it does not give rise to liability for defamation. And so the clear and convincing standard is different than the preponderance of the evidence standard. They have to prove actual malice by each other as defined in this jury instruction. And they have to prove that Amber Heard knew that the statements she were making was, were false or with willful disregard for the truth. And they have to prove that Adam Walbin, as Johnny Depp's agent, made the statements with the same knowledge that they were false or for willful disregard for the truth. And something to point out at the end of this definition, it doesn't have to be fully true, as Virginia law states. It just has to be substantially accurate. If they believed when they were saying it that it was substantially true, then it's not defamatory. Then there's not actual malice here. I, I don't know if that I've ever seen a defamation claim being made against somebody's attorney. It's like that's saying that the attorney doesn't believe their client and so he would have gotten the information from Depp. To me, that's an unusual one. They must have had some early briefing or argument over whether or not he was his agent and like speaking on Depp's behalf. No, there that's going to, to the jury. So that that's, yeah, that's in the jury's chart. I didn't put that one in here, but that's going to oh, the jury to decide. Thought, yeah. Oh, okay. So they're deciding whether or not he spoke as his agent. Yeah. Okay. Just the fact that he was his attorney isn't enough. They have to prove that he was acting as his attorney at the time. They made all these arguments in the jury instruction conference. There is an instruction in there defining what an agent is. And so they, the, the jury can make that determination. Interesting. Yeah. This is a civil case. And in a civil case, it's 
the greater weight of the evidence, the preponderance of the evidence. So here's what the jury instruction says about that. When using these instructions, the phrase, the greater weight of the evidence, also sometimes called the preponderance of the evidence, means the evidence which you find more persuasive when evaluated against all of the evidence that has been admitted in the case. The testimony of one witness whom you believe can be the greater weight of the evidence. So this is the civil standard, which is sometimes described as more likely than not. And it's not the criminal standard in the United States, which is beyond a reasonable doubt. So it's much lower than that. Sometimes attorneys argue that preponderance of the evidence is 51%. If you are just one over the line, then that's the greater weight of the evidence. But there's a different standard for proving malice, which is what we just defined before, and that's the clear and convincing evidence. The jury instruction for that says, when a party has the burden of proving an issue by clear and convincing evidence, he or she must produce evidence that creates in your mind a firm belief or conviction that he or she has proved the issue. So malice has to be proven with clear and convincing evidence. And both sides have to prove malice with clear and convincing evidence to win if they want to win their defamation claim. This is for the jury to right, decide right. if they have clear and convincing evidence and firmly believe that either statement was said with actual malice. So do you want to now let's talk about what their theories of malice are? Yeah. Okay, so looking and analyzing the case and the closing arguments, which if you are interested in this case, please go watch the closing arguments. They've, they were both fabulous, and it's such a good summation of the trial. So Depp's theory here has been that Heard started the abuse allegations as a hoax to gain more advantage in their divorce, like more money, which is why they've been harping, or Depp's team has been harping on what she did with the money after. They claim that the hoax snowballed and she had to make up other allegations to support the original one that she stated to support her restraining order. Heard's theory of malice for her counterclaim is a text that he sent stating he would destroy her by filing the lawsuit. It says, when the marriage was over, he told their former mutual friend and sometimes agent Christian Carino that she was a gold-digging, low-level, dime-a-dozen, mushy, pointless, dangling, overused, flappy fish market and she should prepare for global humiliation. And that is a quote. So from our previous episode, we talked about in the UK trial how the son had to prove by preponderance of the evidence, the 51% standard essentially, that Depp was a wife beater. And in the United States, truth is, we assume the statements are true. So This jury instruction says, quote, you must remember that there is no burden on either party to prove the truth of any of the statements. Both parties were free to offer proof of truth, but by doing so, they did not assume the burden of convincing you the truth of the statements. The burden remains on each party to prove that the statements he or she complains of are false. Okay. Okay. In my opinion, this is where Depp is going to lose. And I think he will lose. His burden here is really high to prove that the statements Amber Heard made are false. This is from Rotten Bourne's closing. He says, this is summarized. If Depp abused Heard one time, psychologically, emotionally, or physically, then she wins. He also said that if the jury believes they were abusive to each other, Amber still wins. They heard audio of Depp shouting obscenities and were read again many of the text messages. And Rottenborn did very well at reminding people about the law here, that it's really not a tit for tat. And even if it was, Heard still wins. So in 
the closing argument by Depp's team, they argued that it was Johnny Depp and not Amber Heard who was the victim of, quote, persistent verbal, emotional, and physical abuse. Quote, there is a victim of domestic abuse in this courtroom, and it is not Ms. Heard, end quote. As a counter to what Heard's attorneys have argued, Depp's attorneys argue, in closing, quote, either she is a victim of truly horrible abuse, or she is a woman who is willing to say absolutely anything. In the closing, they argued if, that if you, to the jurors, that if the jurors don't believe everything that Amber Heard testified to, then they can't find her credible on any of them. That's a completely different argument than what Amber Heard's attorney is making. It's really just two different sides of a coin. During Depp's closing, Camille did an, a fantastic job. I think actually all the attorneys did. I was really impressed with Rottenborn's legal arguments, but she played clips of the Amber Heard audio where she is admitting to hitting Johnny Depp and mocking him. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. So we've been using the closings because they're a great summary of the law as set forth in the jury instructions. And we're going to keep using snippets of that as we go through. But now we're going to talk about the U.S. trial procedure. So before any of us saw anything that happened in this actual trial, there was a ton of discovery. There was a ton of motion practice. And so some of that stuff is really interesting. And we're going to talk about it a little bit here because both sides in a case have to produce the documents that they're going to use to support their case. They have to answer interrogatories, which are written questions, and those are binding on the party. So Johnny Depp had to answer interrogatories. Amber Heard had to answer interrogatories. They had requests for production. There were requests for admission, all kinds of stuff. And then obviously we heard a lot of audio clips in the trial and text messages. Yeah, I think there have been a lot of motions and discovery here, which is totally to be expected given how much evidence and how sensitive the evidence is. Discovery was contentious in this matter, which I think we can understand why. Both sides were zealous advocates for their client, and both sides in the process of discovery before they got to trial had attorney's fees awarded to the other side for various discovery motions. So we get to know exactly how much everybody cost. And we thought you guys might be <laughs> interested lot. in that. <laughs> and they, they, everybody cost a lot. So Elaine in this, she says that her hourly rate was $700. And she said that she spent 26 hours on the particular matter at issue here, which I think is defending a motion to compel. And her total cost for that was $19,320. We have a summary of the time records from one of the pleadings from when Depp's attorneys got awarded their fees for a similar motion. And it says Benjamin G. Chu is $804 an hour. And then Camille is $644 an hour. So that gives you an example of how much they cost an hour. So to talk to Mr. Benjamin Chu, it's going to cost you $804 per hour. But one thing we should mention is that both sides in this case filed summary judgment motions saying that the other side hadn't developed enough evidence to submit a triable case. And the judge denied both of those and said that there were issues of fact on both sides, meaning that everything was going to go to a jury. So now we're at trial. There's very specific rules about who's allowed to testify. 
The main category of witnesses in most trials is lay witnesses. Those are just ordinary everyday people like me and you who have personal knowledge of the events. Obviously, that's the parties themselves, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. And then it's the other people that the judge determines can come in because they have personal knowledge of facts that are relevant to the determination of the issues in the case. It's really important that a witness has personal knowledge. So this is when you see a witness testifying and an attorney objects to lack of foundation. Then the attorney that's doing the direct examination has to lay a foundation for how the witness has personal knowledge of what they're about to testify to. And we saw that happen. As an example of why it's so important that a witness has personal knowledge, think about Teresa on The Real Housewives of New Jersey going up to people and saying, I heard a rumor. That's not valid evidence of anything. She could never do that in a court of law. She doesn't have personal knowledge of it. It's frank hearsay. It's bad. (laughs) And the courts keep all of that type of stuff out. Let's talk about hearsay. We got a lot of questions about hearsay. So much hearsay. (laughs) As an example, one of the witnesses was Ben King. And he was the house manager for Johnny Depp. And he was allowed to testify as to the condition of the Australia house after the three-day incident where the tip of Depp's finger was cut off because he had personal knowledge of what the house looked like both before and after the incident. And he was able to testify as to the location of Depp's fingertip because he had personal knowledge. He was the one who actually located the tip of Depp's finger. He picked it up. He was allowed to testify to that. He had personal knowledge of it. Ben King's testimony is also where we get into the now infamous example of Heard's attorney objecting to his own question as hearsay. So we're going to answer your questions about what hearsay is, and then we're going to break down what happened. Okay, so hearsay is an out-of-court statement offered for the truth of the matter. Federal Rules of Evidence 801 and 802 specifically define hearsay and provide that this type of evidence is generally not admissible unless an exception exists. And this rule is consistent with the understanding that a witness relaying another person's statements or actions can be less reliable than a firsthand account. And reliability is at the heart of all evidence. So there are two exemptions from hearsay. Prior statements of a testifying witness that are used to prove that the current testimony is consistent or inconsistent. This is, I feel like this is like a gotcha. Gotcha. You testified this before. The second one is a statement made by an opposing party in a representative capacity that is then offered against the party. This is referred to a statement by a party opponent. This is another gotcha. So gotchas are okay. There are nearly 30 exceptions to hearsay. So where it is found to be hearsay, but you can still use it in court and you get it in for another reason. It's like sneaking a hearsay behind an acceptable mask. And here are three common exceptions. So one is when the declarant is unavailable to testify, either because they're deceased or otherwise incapacitated. So a statement is made under the belief that imminent death is called a dying declaration. And the idea is that people speak the truth when they think they are going to die. Morbid, but that is an exception. There's another one that is a present sense impression where the statement describes an event or situation and it was made simultaneous to the event or immediately after. And the theory here is that people are more accurate when they describe, describe things as they happen. So like if you're on the phone with a 911 dispatcher and the person's like, the person told me this on the phone, that's sometimes an exception. This is a really crude example. So don't come for me if I am misspeaking on that. 
Number three, a statement of the declarant's, declarant's then existing state of mind. It ex- describes the motive or intent or a physical or emotional condition. And number four, I said I had three, but here's number four, the residual exception, which allows hearsay evidence if it is supported by sufficient guarantees of trustworthiness and is more probative on the issue for which it is offered than other evidence that could be obtained through reasonable efforts. Some hearsay statements fit under several categories. So looking as an, at an example from the trial, the audio clip of Amber Heard, where she says, quote, I'm sorry that I didn't hit you across the face in a proper slap. Wait, let me actually insert the audio from the trial here. And I, I want to lie. And then I didn't I punch s- you, by then- the way. You, I'm sorry that I didn't uh, uh, hit you across the face in a proper slap, but I was hitting you. It was not punching you. Babe, you're not punched. Don't tell me what it feels like to be punched. You, you know, even a lot of fights have been around a long time. I don't know. Yeah. No, I, when you fucking have a close You face. didn't get punched. You got hit. I'm sorry I hit you like this, but I did not punch you. I did not fucking deck you. I fucking was hitting you. I don't know what the motion of my actual hand was, but you're fine. I did not hurt you. I did not punch you. I was hitting you. How are you? How, what am I supposed to do? Do this? I, I'm not sitting here bitching about it, am I? You are. That's the difference between me and you. You're a fucking baby. Because you start... You are such a baby! Grow the fuck up, Johnny! Did you Johnny. start physical fights? I did start a physical fight. Yeah, you did, so I had because, to fuck out of there. Yes, you did. So you did the right thing, the big thing. The, you know what? You are admirable. So that is an out-of-court statement that's being submitted. It was played in Depp's, during Depp's direct examination, and it's being submitted for the truth of the matter asserted. That audio clip is hearsay. So how did they get it in? And this statement, I think, fits several hearsay exceptions. It's a present sense impression. So when Depp and Heard are speaking, that was that it's a recording of the statement made exactly as that was going on. And it's simultaneously to the event that happened or immediately after. So it fits in that one. And then it I think they also probably argued that it was evidence of their then existing state of mind. So that fits into that hearsay exception. And then also, I think they would argue the residual exception. Now, again, we're using the federal rules of evidence for ease. This was in Virginia, but Virginia has similar rules for these hearsay exceptions. So that's how they got those audio clips in. But obviously, and we're going to talk about this too when we talk about exhibits, you have to authenticate these things. So they had to authenticate the voices and then prove that they hadn't been altered and that they were sufficient to get to the jury. But we'll talk about that when we get to our exhibit discussion. So here's the audio clip that Angela mentioned earlier where Rottenborn objected to his own question on hearsay grounds. And isn't it true that in the entire time you were there, you were not informed as to what caused damage to Mr. Depp's hand on finger on March 8th? Objection, hearsay. I'm asking what he wasn't told. I'll sustain the objection. Next question. You didn't know what could cause damage to Mr. Depp's hand while you were there on March 8th, correct? Dr. Kipper told me he sustained an injury on uh, one of his well, fingers. Uh, objection, Here's, hearsay. Wait, you, you asked the question. Oh, oh. Next question. Okay, you said he sustained a, an injury to his finger. Yes. So what Rottenborn meant to say was move to strike witnesses' response as hearsay. 
And that probably would have been sustained because he said, Dr. Kipper told me that's hearsay, that's an out-of-court statement. But one of the things we wanted to point out with this was it's really important when you're doing cross-examination to frame your questions as tight as possible. These attorneys probably hadn't had a good night's sleep in months, and they're working really hard. They've spent years developing this case. Anybody could have slipped up and accidentally done that. It's just the rest of us aren't being televised to millions of people when we're cross-examining a witness, typically. So go easy on these people. I'll insert a clip here where Depp's attorney really objected a lot, and I won't say whether or not it was proper, but my belief is that the reason she did so was to cut off Amber's testimony. And it's it was a strategic choice, in my opinion. Playing the clip, there were many objections that occurred during Amber's testimony. And that could be to throw her off. That could be to interrupt her testimony. It could be legally, like, there could be basis legally. But that was just my opinion, watching the testimony, that it was a tactical move by Depp's team. So he stopped communicating with the medical team that he had hired. Objection calls for speculation. Um, How do you know that? Uh, I was there. Um, They fired him. Objection calls for hearsay. I'll sustain the objection. Okay. Um, Without telling what the medical people did, go ahead and tell what was going on with you and Johnny. Um, Yeah, his... Uh, his mental health, for lack of what it looked like, his mental health was just falling apart. Is what it looked like. Objection calls for speculation. I'll sustain, I'll sustain the objection. What did you observe that led you to believe that his mental health was falling apart? Objection, Your Honors. Calls for speculation. Yeah, she can say what leading. she observed. I'll sustain the objection as to leading. Next question. What, if anything, did you observe about Mr. Depp's uh, state? He was hallucinating. Auditory. Objection calls for speculation. Uh, I'll sustain the objection. Please please tell the jury exactly what he was doing that led you to believe he was hallucinating. Objection leading. Sustained. What, if anything, was Mr. Depp doing that would have led you to believe he was hallucinating? Sustained. Sustained. What, please describe what Mr. Depp was saying in January of 2016. Uh, He was talking to people who weren't there. Meaning people who were not in the room. He was communicating with people and sounds and voices that weren't there. I know because I was sometimes in the room and sometimes on the phone with him. And he would tell me I had a conversation with him that I did not have. He would say I said something that I didn't have. He would comment on somebody being in the room behind me that wasn't there. It was terrifying. It was terrifying. Because, you know, once he, he smashed a board right next to my face... And it was unclear to me whether he was even mad at me or he was convinced that the guy he said he saw me with was in the room. I didn't know if he was in, if Johnny felt the man was in the room with us or not at that point. But I remember he, he put his fist through a, white, a whiteboard in the kitchen. He hallucinated right in front of me. And Objection some, calls for speculation. Don't use the word hallucinate. Just describe Sorry. what led you to believe. Your that. Honor, okay. I'll sustain. I'll sustain the objection. She can testify to what she observed. Please, please. Thank you, Your Honor. Another objection we wanted to talk about was objection leading. And you're allowed to ask leading questions on cross-examination. And a leading question is a question that suggests the answer. Leading questions are typically framed isn't it true? Wouldn't you agree? So isn't it true that you entered your home at 1.05 p.m., sir? Stuff like that. It's 
it specifically suggests the answer. We watched during the trial where Amber Heard's attorney, Elaine, when she would get an objection leading to one of her questions on one of her direct examinations, she would reframe the question by saying, what, if any, doesn't solve the issue of suggesting the answer. It's still clear to the witness that you're suggesting the answer to them. What, if any, bruises do you see on your face that suggest the answer? However, you, do, you cannot do that when you're directing your own witness. When you're examining your own witness, you can't direct them into a, an answer. It's just it's a different situation. But yeah, the, the goal is to get the person to agree with what you are saying on cross-examination. You want to put them on train tracks and not let them derail and not let them escape and from what you're saying. So, And a lot of times, cross-examinations will mirror the closing argument that the attorney wants to make. And we saw Camille do a very good job of that. She was very careful to only ask questions that she could back up and that if the witness did try to argue, she would have supporting evidence. One of the most powerful things you can do on cross-examination is if a witness testifies differently than they did previously and you have a videotape of their deposition. And then you can play that. One thing to remember with a prior inconsistent statement is if you attack somebody with a prior inconsistent statement and it's not of material significance, you can lose credibility by looking petty. There's so many little judgment calls like that during a trial that the attorneys have to make. You can also bring up prior felony convictions, a witness's character under federal rule of evidence 608. There's a lot of limitations. Prior uncharged conduct showing untrustworthiness, evidence attacking a witness's ability to perceive recollect or effectively communicate the matter that he or she was called to testify about. A really famous example is from one of my favorite law movies, and that's My Cousin Vinny, where Vinny is gently cross-examining an elderly witness, and she wears very thick glasses, and he asks her whether or not she had her glasses on. She says no. He asks her to take them off and goes to the back of the room, holds up fingers, and she can't say how many fingers he's holding up. And the distance that he goes to the back of the room is the distance from the event that she said she saw. Super dramatic and effective, probably pretty rare that you'd actually get to be in a trial and do something like that. But that's a great example of impeachment. And he did it in the trial very gently against this very lovable elderly witness. The way that shown in that trial is just incredibly well done. There were tons of examples of impeachment from this trial. We are just talking about this to discuss the trial procedure and impeachment. Don't take us discussing this to say that we are going one way or the other. So the op-ed states that two years ago, Amber Heard became a public figure representing domestic abuse. The op-ed was in 2018, and the domestic violence TRO that she got was in 2016. So Depp's attorneys have been claiming, of course, that's what she was talking about in the op-ed. So Depp claims that Heard was using a single false 2016 public allegation of domestic abuse. And this is, again, this is what Depp is claiming to extort him at the time, Heard's divorce attorney sent a letter to Depp's attorney saying that if Depp didn't agree to Heard's demands in that letter, that Heard was going to file a domestic violence TRO. She said she was going to do that in three days. So this is all part of Depp's claims. She said that we haven't made this public. However, if you don't do what we want, we're going to go get this TRO and it will become public. 
They claim that Amber Heard sent an edited video of Depp smashing cabinets so that it would be released the day of her deposition in the divorce case, and that she also told TMZ where the deposition was, that she'd be photographed walking in. And they also claim that she told TMZ which side of her face would be bruised the day that she got the TRO and that she would pause and show which side of her face was bruised for the TMZ photographer. Now, remember Depp is saying that Heard started the allegations with a single public malicious DV hoax, again, Depp's words, to gain an advantage in the divorce, which then snowballed into all the other allegations made by Heard in an attempt to support her original malicious allegation. These are the things that you heard argued in closing argument by Depp's team. And then Depp argues that all of Heard's allegations were made with malice because they were only made in an effort to support the veracity of her they're arguing, original malicious hoax. So in discussing the video in Heard's direct examination at trial, she testified that she was terrified of Depp and that she took the video. So she's saying she took the video, and then they play the video. And then at trial, Heard testified that she had nothing to do with alerting TMZ and that she wouldn't know how to do that. And Camille attempts to impeach her with her deposition testimony, where Heard talks about TMZ being alerted. But Heard still denies that she was the one who alerted TMZ. So this is an example of Camille attempting to use a prior inconsistent statement to impeach Heard. Now, the jury instruction for a prior inconsistent statement by a party says this, quote, if you believe from the evidence that Ms. Heard or Mr. Depp previously made a statement inconsistent with his or her testimony at this trial, that previous statement may be considered by you as evidence that what Ms. Heard or Mr. Depp previously said was true. And then because Heard continued to deny it, they ended up bringing in a rebuttal witness. So at the conclusion of a defendant's case, the plaintiff can present rebuttal witnesses or evidence to refute evidence that was presented by the defendant. This may include only evidence not presented in the case initially or a new witness who contradicts the defendant's witnesses. The TMZ witness, Morgan Tremaine, was a rebuttal witness put on by Depp Tremaine is a former TMZ employee, and he testified about the leak of information related to Heard filing a restraining order against Depp and the video showing Depp smashing cabinets. Tremaine testified that TMZ received the video of Depp smashing cabinets, and then it was quickly put up on the website, and that when they received it, it did not match the video that was shown in court because the part where Heard laughs at the end and her face is shown was edited out. Tremaine said... The only way it would have been posted so quickly is if it was sent directly by the copyright owner. He also testified that he received a tip about Amber Heard's bruise, which cheek would be bruised, and that she would pause and turn and make sure that they got her fate. If you haven't watched that part of the trial, that cross of him is very spicy. Ceci, can you talk a little bit about what they were arguing with the copyright? Amber Heard was the original recorder. I think she testified that she was. Then she owns the copyright in the video footage. So then she is the one that has the authority to then provide either license it or give someone else the rights to publish it. There's a chance that she could have had given the rights to someone on her team who then licensed it out to be republished. That's probable. However, she is the only one, if she is the copyright holder, by virtue of taking the video, that can give that right to other people. Depp's team had to be very careful in the questions they were asking Mr. Tremaine because he was under a non-disclosure confidentiality agreement 
from when he worked there. And TMZ can be pretty litigious. They were careful to not have him say that it was Amber Heard. They just provided the information that Depp's team is hoping would allow the jury to draw that conclusion. And Tremaine's testimony that if we get the video directly from the copyright owner, then we can upload it within 15 minutes. And then Camille asked about when, how long did it take for this video to be uploaded? And he said about 15 minutes. And says he is right. Amber Heard had testified earlier in the trial that she was the one that took the video. So they were trying to have the jury draw that conclusion, which leads us to a discussion about exhibits. So you have to lay the foundation for it, authenticate it, and then you have to move to publish it. You have to move to admit it as evidence. Then that's the time for the objection to be made. And then once the judge rules on the objection, if there's one made, then you have to ask for it to be published. It's like almost like casting a spell. Like you have to go through all of the elements <laughs> or else you can't publish it to the jury. And also, if you forget to move to admit it into evidence, if you just talk about it, then it's not in evidence. Yeah. And then similarly, I think a piece of advice is like use the exhibits and make sure to weave them in. Don't sit there with all these charts and stuff. The jury's going to be looking at it like, oh, I wonder what they're going to use that for. And then you don't use it. It's that same feeling that we got where Monique didn't use her binder of receipts. An issue with authentication of exhibits that came up in this case was metadata. There was a lot of testimony about metadata and whether or not the pictures were authentic depictions of what they were said to be. The Amber Heard photo metadata where the expert, and his name was Norbert Neumeister, and I love that name for an expert, was reviewing the exchangeable image file, the EXIF format of the photo showing evidence of bruising. And Neumeister observed in his testimony that the software associated with photo of bruising on Ms. Heard's face shows Photos 3.0, and that's a photo editing software program, instead of the iOS version associated with the iPhone 6. And he testified that this indicates that the photo was edited. Now, that doesn't mean the bruise didn't happen, just that the photo can't be authenticated as originally taken from the iPhone. Again, not taking sides, just pointing out a forensic analysis. There was an issue over whether or not these could come in. And from my understanding, the judge ruled they can come in, but then you can question authenticity. That was how the judge balanced that out. And we've mentioned before how important metadata is. Yes. <laughs> how it can really affect a case. So this is an example of that. So one other thing I want to talk about, because I was just floored by this, when I saw it, during Heard's cross-examination, she was asked, isn't it true that these are the only photos of your injuries that have been shown to this jury? And Heard responds and looks directly at the jury and tells the jury that there were more photos, but she wasn't allowed to show them to the jury. That would, What did you think about that? That was like crazy to me. I just don't understand how you go from there. If you're cross-examining her, how do you then be like, you're not allowed to she's is she allowed she's allowed to i don't know i don't know like how do you recover from that i like, see like this without thing, minimizing <laughs> what she's saying on cross-examination you are supposed to minimize like they so camille asked to approach yeah and there was a very i'm sure heated bench discussion and i i don't usually there's a motion in limine saying that you can't if a judge has excluded something because it does look like from what Amber Heard was saying either it's one of two things like either the judge excluded some photos 
and said, look, even if I, I feel like these can't come in, even if I let opposing counsel question their authenticity or Amber Heard gave her attorney's photos and the attorneys were like, we can't use these. Yeah. Yeah. She's like testifying about the trial procedure, the discovery procedure, which is, which is interesting. We think, but again, it could be that she gave her attorney's photos and, the, and her attorneys were like, we're not using these. I don't, I don't want to use these. You, you don't know. I, we don't know. Because she literally looked yeah. at the jury and was like, that's not my job. And it, it looked like she might have been throwing her attorneys under the bus, maybe. It was really hard to figure out what was going on there. Mm-hmm. It was just a crazy moment. Should we talk about experts? Mm-hmm. Normally, courts prohibit witnesses from testifying based on their own opinions or analysis. But courts relax these rules for expert witnesses testifying about matters within their field of expertise. So generally speaking, experts can testify about their conclusions in a case so long as their analysis is scientifically sound. In researching their conclusions, experts can rely on the same sort of evidence that people in the profession normally rely on in their work, even if the evidence is otherwise inadmissible in court. For example, a doctor can testify about his analysis of x-rays, even though x-rays would normally be hearsay. So one example of this is, okay, and we have to give a little explanation here. So Depp did not put his mental state at issue, but Heard did. So Heard was claiming specific mental trauma and mental damages as part of her damages. So Depp's team got forensic psychologist Dr. Curry, who testified that she diagnosed Ms. Heard with borderline and hysteronic personality disorders and made other determinations relevant to the case. After examining records pertaining to Amber's history and performing 12 hours of assessment interviews with Amber in person. So in cases where somebody's psychological somebody's damages are like alleged to be psychological, the other side is allowed to do a an examination of that witness to make their own case regarding it. And so that's why Depp's team got to have their own forensic psychologist do an examination of Amber Heard. I wanted to bring up an example of attacking the credibility of an expert witness. And this has to do with Heard psychiatrist witness, Dr. Spiegel, who testified about the cognitive impact of severe substance abuse, including memory loss and difficulty concentrating. And that was directed at Johnny Depp. He also had to base his testimony on Depp's deposition testimony and public appearances and videos because he wasn't able to meet with Depp. So based on his analysis, Spiegel concluded that Depp had narcissistic personality traits. And it was interesting how Depp's team attacked this. What they did was question his experience and methodology. And they did so by using their own psychiatrist as an expert witness, Dr. Shaw, to refute Dr. Spiegel's testimony. So his only role in the case was to review Heard's expert's testimony and critique it, which I thought was really interesting. Dr. Shaw testified that Dr. Spiegel violated the Goldwater rule, which prohibits mental health experts from diagnosing public figures without examining them. Dr. Shaw testified that because of this, Dr. Spiegel's conclusion that Depp had narcissistic personality traits was untrustworthy. He never testified that Depp didn't have narcissistic personality traits, which that would have been another tactic that they could have used. Instead, they used Dr. Shaw to challenge Dr. Spiegel's opinions by pointing out how they were based on flawed methodology and went a step further to call it improper. I heard a lot of discussion about this. And I thought it was really interesting that there was psychologists that were, and I don't know whether or not this is true because I'm not in that field, but they were saying that it's an ethical violation to Mm -hmm. violate the Goldwater rule. And I don't know if that's true or not. And I don't know if that applies in the context of trials, but I thought that was interesting. 
So we got a couple questions. One of those was, why did Depp's team get to bring in a witness about Amber Heard's arrest? And that was because it was a rebuttal witness. Heard denied the circumstances of her prior arrest. And so that's why Depp's team was allowed to bring in a witness who was found to have personal knowledge and have personally witnessed the arrest and the circumstances to testify. Now, another example of that is when Depp denied having ever been violent with a romantic partner. And so then Heard's team was allowed to bring in Ellen Barkin to testify about the events of their relationship when she alleged that he had been violent. So that's how that worked out for both sides. We had another question about all the jurors have to agree. Yes. So Mm -hmm. there has to be unanimous verdict. And then also we got a question is, what can they both win? I don't see how that's possible with the way the facts are alleged, that they can both defame each other. That won't work because either one person is telling the truth or the other, according to the way the defamation counts are alleged. So no, but they could also both lose. That's possible. They yeah. could, the jury could come back and say neither party defamed each other. This might be coming out when there's already been a verdict. I think this case had a lot of interesting legal examples. And it was, I don't want to use the word nice. It was beneficial to have it be so accessible to the public so that people can see how trials occur and nice for us because we could provide commentary and context to everyone in a hopefully easy to understand way. I guess we'll see what happens. I just want there still to be civility, whatever the outcome might be. I think for Depp, this case wasn't about the law. I think for him, he wanted to clear his name and that's all that matters to him. We'll see how what happens and I think it's important to remember that the court of public opinion doesn't have any sway here, as the judge mentioned in the jury instructions. So just bear that in mind as the decision comes out, whatever it might be. I was disturbed to hear that there were some comments left on some of the psychologists and doctors' public profiles. That's not okay. When things like that happen, it gives the court's reason to question whether or not they will continue to allow real-time public video of trials. And the other thing is that it's going, it's reasonably going to make people afraid to testify. And that's a huge concern. Don't do that. And we're sure our listeners haven't done that because you guys are civil and respectful. But please make sure that you encourage other people not to do things like that. And then also why we did get to see so much, there's a lot that we didn't get to see. There are behind the scenes people that made all of this possible and did so much work. The clerks, the bailiffs, the paralegals, the trial team cannot function well without rock solid paralegals. And I'm telling you, those people work so hard and they are not getting the public acclaim that they deserve because they're behind the scenes. But I promise you there were some phenomenal paralegals working on this. And then one other thing I want to note is that it was really exciting to see Depp's team let associates take the stand and do cross-examination and take witnesses. And that I was fortunate to work in a firm when I first started out that let me do those things at trial 
very early in my career. And so I was able to build on that experience. And it was great to see the lead trial counsel let other people shine. Yeah. So I think on that note, we'll close this out here. That's our coverage of Johnny Depp v. Heard v. The Sun. And thank you for listening. Bye, guys. The Bravo Docket is part of the ACAST Creator Network. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Bravo Docket is part of the Acast Creator Network.